Now, uh, my day job is as a teacher. I'm, I'm a science teacher, but uh, primarily physics. And I've taught, I've been teaching 20 years. I've taught thousands of um, students. And the most naturally talented physics student I've ever taught was a lad called Dylan. Um, now, um, this was maybe about six or so years ago. Um, he never said anything in the class unless you asked him. Um, he didn't really have any friends in the class. He never spoke to anybody. It's not what you're thinking. He wasn't a classic sort of physics geek type, can't talk to anybody sort of thing. Um, he was a popular lad, like a um, social type of lad outside of lessons. Um, but he just had such a brilliant, natural understanding of physics um, that he, I was giving him extra stuff. I was giving him the, the hardest questions that had ever been on the GCSEs and he could work them out naturally. He, he, if I asked him something, he could apply some of the principles we've done elsewhere in different areas in a way that other people um, can't normally. He was a strong academically in a lot of subjects. He was good. He was amongst the best in biology. He was amongst the best in chemistry. But in physics, there was no contest. He was just so far better than anybody else in that class. That Some of the others in that class who were competitive um, were just competing amongst themselves. There was no way of uh, touching Dylan. He was absolutely brilliant. And I remember very clearly his parents' evening in year 11, where normally when you sat down with the parents of a year 11 lad, you're trying to encourage them to give them a bit of a kick up the backside because they haven't started revising yet. That's not what I need to say to Dylan. And, and, uh, Dylan was there and his mum was there and um, I, I started off, I said, look, I never say this, but he is absolutely brilliant at physics and it's a crime if he doesn't study physics to a higher level after college, after school. I said, look, I haven't spoke to him about what his plans are, but it should involve physics because I've never come across anybody who uh, understands physics as naturally as well as he does. And we got on speaking and she said um, that... He was getting into loads of trouble um doing well he was all right in lessons but he was getting into loads of trouble around the school like break time lunch time in the corridors after school he was also uh getting into trouble minor trouble with the police outside of school getting involved in antisocial behavior and things like that the police had brought him home a couple of times and she said actually he didn't know whether he even wanted to go to college he had he, he didn't know what he wanted to do now what was, the, what was the issue? I'm sure you've guessed it. It was his mates. It was the lads who he was hanging around with. He was fine in lessons because he was a bright lad and he was, he, he was in the top set and all his mates weren't. But when he was with them at break time or was when he was with them outside of school, that was when the issues were starting. Um, when they were causing problems around the school, you know, smoking in the toilets or graffiti in somewhere, like he was there and he was involved with that. Or after school, when they were causing mischief around the takeaway or whatever they were doing, um, he was there. He was absolutely brilliant at, at physics, but he had a group of mates that were a bad influence on him. And his, I just felt that that parents even, I just really felt for his mum because it felt like, oh, like his future was in the balance. Now, I taught his sister a couple of years later and I used to ask her regularly, how was he getting on? And he'd be pleased to know he was doing well at his A-levels. And I used to sort of gently fish for information. Say, oh, is he, is he still knocking around with Jaden and Leon and that? And then she was like, oh, he barely sees his mates now because he's got a girlfriend. So he sacked off his mates for his girlfriend. Now, I considered that to be um, a positive in this case. 
I don't know what he's doing now, um, but I was I was pleased with that information. I can't say the same for another three lads that I, that I taught that I um, unfortunately do know what's going on with them, where they're currently one year into an eight-year prison sentence for supplying Class A substances. And I wouldn't have thought it for those lads. I remember talking to Sheldon about it. It was in, it was in the news when they were um, sentenced and just saying I would just never have guessed. Like there's some lads who I've taught who I wouldn't be surprised if I found out they'd been in trouble with the police. But these were three lads that I wouldn't have thought it. Three nice, polite, friendly lads. Now, they made their own decisions and then they've been held accountable for those decisions. I'm not excusing them in any way. But what was a massive influencing factor when they left school, it was the people they started hanging around with. Who you hang around with, who you're not hanging around with has a massive impact on you. It's not just at a young age, although it is, it's all the time. There's a, a sort of motivational speaker called Jim Rohn who popularized a concept that says, you are the average of the five people who you spend the most time with. And I don't know how true this is, but he says it occurs with everything. So um, in terms of money, um, you will you will be the average earner of the five people who you spend the most time with. And he sort of, if he's spinning it at an audience that's wanting to earn more money, he's saying, well, you should start hanging around with people who have higher salaries with you than you. I don't know whether that like it, it works to that ex extent, but I'm sure that if the five people who you're spending most time with are obsessed about making more money, then you're likely to start picking up that as well. Or if the five people who you spend the most time with are always complaining about what's going on in their life, you're going to start complaining about what's going on in your life. The people who you spend time with have a massive impact on you. Now, I think that that is true. I think that the various um, advice about who to hang around with and who not to hang around with is generally good advice, which is why this passage today has challenged me. Because me saying, oh, look, to my boys, I like, don't get in with the wrong crowd, is a bit different to what Jesus is doing in this passage today. So if you found yourself agreeing with me there, thinking, yeah, it does have a big influence on who you hang around with, then we need to pay attention to this because Jesus is going to challenge um, our way of thinking. We're currently, as a church, reading through the, um, the book of Mark, known as Mark's Gospel. It's a biography of Jesus. Um, it's really beneficial to do this because we don't just want to um, sort of conjure up our own image of Jesus that we've come up with through different things that we think. We want to see Jesus as he really is. And no matter how many times you've read through the biographies of Jesus, you always see something surprising or you always see something challenging. Where we're at currently is that Jesus has started going around different towns, preaching and teaching people about the kingdom of God. Crowds have started following him. Um, he's been doing miracles, word about that's getting out, and crowds have started following him. And we're just going to look at a few verses here with a couple of little interactions, but um, there's nothing unimportant in this. Um, ben and Scott have both said about how Mark's gospel is the shortest of the uh, four Gospels, and it's just like, this is happening, this is happening. Everything that's been recorded in there has been chosen to communicate to us something about God's kingdom. So we want to pay close attention to everything that Jesus says and does in this. So I'm going to pick it up in Mark chapter 2, verse 13. Once again, Jesus went outside beside the lake. Sorry, went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. 
As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So I've got two points I want to say to you today. I think they sound rubbish, but I'm going to persuade you that they are good things. Jesus is a friend. Jesus is a doctor. That sounds bad, I know, but I think that these are really uh, brilliant truths to understand when you get there. Jesus is a friend. Uh, Jesus is a doctor. So we start off here with Jesus um, goes past this tax collector's booth and he calls Levi, who's the tax collector, to come and follow him. Now, Levi is also known as Matthew. So if you've come across the disciple known as Matthew, that's the, the same person here. And so Jesus is walking past. He sees Levi and Matthew um, doing his job at the tax collector's booth and says, follow me. And Levi gets up and follows him. And we know from elsewhere that they then becomes one of Jesus's uh, 12 disciples. Now, it's really hard for us to get our heads around how unexpected and how shocking this actually is. And it's because tax collectors were despised, hated members of the community. Now, at the time Jesus is living, the Jewish people are living in their own land, but they're not in charge. They're being conquered by the Romans and the Romans are in charge. They didn't want the Romans to be there, and they dreamed of the day that the Romans would be overthrown, that God would send somebody uh, to get the Romans out of there. Now, the tax collectors were Jewish people who were collecting taxes for the Romans. And these weren't taxes like we might begrudge paying taxes now, but in theory, we pay taxes and receive services for them. Like, so our taxes pay for education, healthcare, and things like that. That's not these, these taxes, the Jewish people who were paying them weren't getting any benefits from them. They were being taxed to pay for the Roman Empire, you know, the massive sort of Roman machine to go on and, and conquer other places. So they didn't want to pay the money, but how bad was it that one of their own people was collecting it for the Romans? It's bad enough if the Roman soldiers coming in and demanding money, but it was one of their own people who was collecting it and giving it to the Romans. And we know from other sources at the time that the way that that worked was these tax collectors often used to charge extra. The Romans were fine with them doing that. They used to come up with elaborate sort of payment systems and charge interest if people could, so that they were able to become rich as well. So they're a traitor to their own people and they're ripping their own people off. Like these are scum. These, these guys who are doing it are absolute scum in that society. But it's not, it's not just that they were traitors to their own people and traitors to, uh, and, and ripping them off. They were traitors to God because the Jewish people were God's people. And so um, the, to side with the Romans was to be against God's people. They're traitors to their own people. They're traitors to God. There's really no modern equivalent that's easy to come up with about how they felt about tax collectors. I mean, maybe we get a glimpse of it when we hear about some politician, you know, who's abused their position to award some contract to a relative or something like that. And it comes out and you think, oh, how can they sleep at night? It's that sort of thing. 
Like the Jewish were there, how, how can he? I went, I went to school with him. How can he sleep at night doing that, tax collecting? That's how they would have felt about Levi or Matthew. Other Jewish literature at the time um, has certain words that it uses for tax collectors that translate sort of into English as licensed robbers or my favourite, beasts in human shape. Now, it doesn't trip off the tongue, but it's an insult, isn't it? I think we've, we've got that much from the translation. He's a beast in human shape, him. You didn't associate with them. They were barred from the temple. They were barred from the synagogue. They were also just barred from general fellowship. They weren't allowed to act as a witness in court because their word wasn't considered to be trustworthy or reliable. The money that they'd earned was seen to be tainted. So if you were some like selling something, you didn't want to take their money because you considered like, you were taking defiled money. These were people who were really they were living in the society, but they were exiled from it. They were cut off. They were despised. And really, it was through their own choice. Like they made the choice to do that, knowing what would happen. So they, for whatever reason, whether it was greed themselves or what, they'll have had their own reasons. But they've made that choice to turn their back on fellowship with their people to do this job. It was self-inflicted. They were exiled. They were treated as scum, but it was self-inflicted. And so Jesus comes along and calls one of them to be his disciple, his follower. He, con he calls somebody who's considered to be just beyond the pale, like absolute scum. He calls them to be one of his disciples and followers. I mean, that's shocking enough, but it's not just that. He then goes to his house and has a meal with him. It says Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house. Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him. So it's not just Levi, one tax collector, and then maybe Jesus saw something in him that he wasn't that bad. There's many tax collectors there. And it's interesting that Jesus isn't getting these tax collectors to preach at them about what they're doing wrong or give instructions to them. Now, he does preach to people, he does teach people, he does give instructions, but that's not what we see here. He's eating with them. And when you're eating with somebody, that's a sign of friendship, of acceptance. I think it's that in our culture, but even more so in the culture of the day. To eat with somebody was to uh, welcome them, to embrace them, uh, to enter into a relationship with them, a friendship. And so Jesus goes into this tax collector's house with many other tax collectors and he's treating them like friends. He's eating with them. It says tax collectors and sinners. Now, this isn't sort of in the way that we might say, oh, everybody's a sinner. They, these are like notorious sinners. People whose sins are obvious and, and public. Therefore, they'd be looked down upon by more respectable religious people. These are the type of people that everybody avoided and Jesus is befriending them. Elsewhere in the Bible, Jesus is referred to as the friend of sinners. And that's because this behavior wasn't a one-off. This was common behavior for him. The sort of people who often find the idea of church uncomfortable are exactly the sort of people who were drawn to Jesus and felt comfortable around him. I was just thinking when I was reading this, that it's interesting that it is really friendship that he's offering, not primarily to serve them, to do, to do stuff. Like there are two notable examples where Jesus provides a lot of food for people. But far more common are the examples where Jesus goes into the house and they're giving him food. He's receiving their hospitality. 
he's not serving the, the people here. Of course, like in a bigger sense, he's, he's come to serve them. But he isn't going in there to like offer them something. They're offering him something and he's accepting. He's going in there as a friend. He's receiving their hospitality. He's going into their houses. He's eating their food. These are the people that everyone avoids, that everyone hates. And it's not like that sort of thing of like in a school playground, there's a one kid who everybody hates and they haven't done anything to be deserve it. It's not that. We don't know the reasons why these people are notorious sinners or why they become tax collectors. But at the very least, some of them have got them that position, avoided and hated, because they've made selfish choices, as I was saying a couple of minutes ago. And these are the sort of people who Jesus befriends. And the weird thing is, he also, in other places, eats meals at the homes of religious leaders. He wants to extend this same friendship to them as well. And so there's three things that I think we can take and apply to our own uh, lives from this. And firstly, if you're a Christian, I would say Jesus models here what our lives should be like. Friendship, making friends. Jesus calls us to be friends to people, to all types of people, including people not like me, including people who don't have a lot of friends, including those on the fringes of society. Now, I think there are all kinds of caveats about there may be certain situations where it's wise for you to not spend time with a particular person or maybe certain situations where it's wise for you to not go into a particular place or spend time with a group of people. Um, that may be true depending on the circumstances. There's also important questions about how many close friendships can you actually maintain and is it better to put more time into a smaller amount of friends or less time into a bigger amount of friends like those questions are worth discussing they're important it's worth thinking about that it's worth talking that through but i don't want our minds to go there first and miss the point that jesus models for us which is we should be friends including to people who are different to us i think the church at large is good at serving people on the edges of society, but what about actually befriending people on the edges of society? Not meeting people as projects, like, oh, what can I do for you? But just meeting them as friends. I think in this case, friendship trumps service, although they're not mutually exclusive. But I think the difference is friendship is, I might serve you in some way and you serve me. The, the service is mutual. So it's not about meeting people primarily to just serve them and, and meet their needs, although I do want to do that, but I want to meet people to extend friendship and receive friendship. I read something that said 10 years ago, some sort of research showed that the average British adult had 5.1 close friends. And now, this was last year, it was down to just 3.7. And that's for the average. So what about the person who the people who are difficult to be around, or the people who've made choices that have distanced themselves from other people. It's going to be less than that. It's going to be zero for many people. And so Jesus does all sorts of things. He teaches, he prays, he does all sorts of different things. And those are all things that the church is called to do. But this is one of the things he does, and this is one of the things that we're called to do. Treat people with dignity and extend friendship to them. At the previous church, me and Lisa were involved in, 
um, when people became members of the church, there was a what we thought was like a funny little phrase. You say, oh, we extend the right hand of fellowship um, to you. You shake hands with somebody and then you're welcomed into church membership. But what I would say is the church at large has probably got a reputation for pointing the finger of accusation rather than extending the hand of friendship and fellowship. So I think that's the first way they should apply to us. As Christians, we should be befriending people. We should be good friends. Secondly, I think that these meals show us what the church is like. The church is like these bizarre meals that Jesus finds himself out with just a totally random collection of people who, have, who Jesus has befriended. As you look around today, what is Grace Church? It's a group of fairly random people who Jesus has befriended and brought together. Some slash many of which you might be thinking, is that a bit of a mistake? Are you sure that Jesus would have befriended that person? If you're somebody, and um, this phrase is common to hear, if you're somebody or you know somebody who says, oh, I, I could never set foot in a church, I'd be struck down by lightning or something like that. That's exactly the sort of person who you find at these meals with Jesus. That's exactly the sort of person who uh, fits in at a church because it's just a, a bizarrely random group of people that Jesus has befriended. And the third thing that I think why this is important, and this is by far the most important of the three, is, yeah, Jesus is our model. Yeah, it should be friendship, and, and that should be what the church is like. But by far the most important is that Jesus wants to befriend you. Now, I don't know everybody here this afternoon, but I'm confident saying that Jesus wants to befriend you. If you think, oh, Jesus wouldn't want anything to do with me, that's wrong. He wants to befriend you. If you think, no, no, I'm, I, I'm, I'm too broken, I'm too messed up, he wouldn't want anything to do with me. He's saying, well, should I come round tonight? Have you got any food on? If you've deliberately made choices that you know are wrong, that's not a barrier. It wasn't a barrier to these people then. It's not a barrier today. To say Jesus is a friend or to say Jesus is my friend, it sounds a bit cheesy. It's not a bit cheesy. To say Jesus is my friend is one of the most shocking Countercultural, but awesome, life changing sentences that you could ever say to say, Jesus is my friend. A couple of hundred years ago, Charles Wesley wrote these words Jesus, the sinner's friend, proclaim. Jesus to sinners is still the same. Outcasts of men, to you I call. Tax collectors and thieves, he spreads his arms to embrace you all. Sinners alone, his grace receives. Jesus wants to befriend you. If you don't hear anything else this afternoon, Jesus wants to befriend you. That was point one, Jesus is a friend. Secondly, Jesus is a doctor. Now, the religious leaders are following my parents' evening advice and they're keeping a good distance from the wrong crowds. They're sort of noticing that Jesus is having dinner with like a bunch of shady characters. Verse 16, when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So they don't get this. Jesus is hanging around with like a dodgy sort of character, and they want to know why, so they ask. But they don't want to ask Jesus because they don't want to go near those characters, so they ask the disciples to ask Jesus. And Jesus replies, the healthy don't need a doctor, it's the sick, it's the people who are ill. 
Now, think about these three situations of people and their relationship with the doctor. Number one, a healthy person. They don't need the doctor. They're fine. Number two, person who is ill. They need the doctor. They go to the doctor. They receive treatment. They're fine. There's a third category of person who isn't fine. That's a person who's ill, but who doesn't go to the doctor, either because they don't want to go to the doctor or because they don't think they're ill. The first two are fine. The healthy person is fine. The ill person who goes to the doctor is fine. But the person who is ill who doesn't go to the doctor is in a bad situation. Now, it might be all right if what you're imagining is a bit of a cold or something like that. But what if it's a matter of life and death? It's not all right. That person is in a dangerous situation. Jesus elaborates on what he means there by saying, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so we have the same three categories there. You've got a righteous person. A person who's good, a person who never does anything wrong. They're all right. Then you've got an unrighteous person or a sinner. That's somebody who doesn't do things right. But um, Jesus has come for those people, and so they're all right. They recognize their need for Jesus, and they receive him. That's like the ill person who goes to the doctor. But it's the third category of people who's in trouble. Just like the person who's ill, it's a matter of life and death, but they don't realize it, or they don't want to go to the doctor. It's the third category of person here. The, the sinner, the person who's not righteous, but who doesn't think that they need Jesus. That person's in a bad situation. Now, the Bible teaches that we none of us are righteous. That's actually a sentence in the book of Romans. No, no, no one is righteous, not even one. We're all sinners. Now, as soon as I say that, I know that in here... Um, People are going to be thinking, well, look, why, how is he calling me unrighteous? I've never killed anyone, and there's somebody over there who's worse than me. It's great. I'm pleased you haven't killed anyone. There probably is somebody over there who's worse than you. But what we mean when we're talking about being unrighteous or being sinful is going to that definition of sin, which is rejection of God. It's turning away from God and trying to put yourself in God's position, ruling your own life. The sinners, the notorious sinners who Jesus was eating with, um, had done that by obviously breaking the, the rules. But the religious leaders had also done it because they were turning their back on Jesus, who was the Son of God. They'd done it by trying to keep all the rules, but by thinking that they could control God by doing that, putting themselves in a place of pride and judgment over others. That isn't their place to be. That's God's place. And Jesus says... He hasn't come to call the righteous. He's come to call the sinners, the unrighteous. He's come to call me and you. I'm not righteous. That's good because Jesus says he comes for me. I'm sick. I'm ill. Jesus says he's come. He's the doctor and he's here for me. Now, I think this is great news, but I also think it's a warning. It's a warning to not ignore the doctor. It was a warning to the religious leaders here. Jesus has come for everyone. What I said before about Jesus wanting to befriend you, whoever you are in here, is true. He has come for everyone. No one's beyond his rescue. But the person who thinks they, they don't need him, that's the person who's in trouble. Sometimes, I haven't heard it recently, but you used to hear in the past people writing off Christianity, say, oh, it's a crutch for the weak. Christianity is a crutch for the weak. Which I get that that sounds bad, but... Not if you've got a broken leg. If you've got a broken leg, a crutch sounds brilliant. You need the crutch. You don't want to be hobbling off with a broken leg when the doctor's right there with a the crutch. If you're sitting there thinking, I, I, don't, I don't need Jesus. I'm fine without him. 
I've got everything I need within myself. I just, I just want to plead with you to be honest with yourself because I, I don't think that's true for any of us. We haven't got everything we need. We can't face every situation we face with just our own strength and our own resources. Be honest with yourself and then go to the doctor because he's right there. He's come for you. A writer called Paul Tripp said this, we all find this so hard to accept because we studiously hold on to the possibility that we are more righteous than the Bible describes as being. We look into the mirror of self-appraisal. The person we tend to see is a person who's more righteous than any of us actually are. If the Bible's description is accurate, then God's grace is our only hope. Thank God that he's given us big grace. Each one of us needs grace that's not only big enough to forgive our sin, but also powerful enough to free us from the self-atoning prison of our own righteousness. We're not only held captive by our sin, but also by the delusion of our righteousness. Resting in God's grace isn't just about confessing your sin. It's about forsaking your own righteousness as well. So God, in grace, will hurt your feelings. He'll expose your delusions of righteousness for what they are. Your Saviour knows that it's only when you abandon your righteousness that you'll run after the righteousness that can only be found in him. It's great news, this. It's the best possible news. Might not sound like it at first. You think, who's he calling me unrighteous? But it's great news. As I said earlier, it's the best possible news for anybody in any sort of situation. The friend of sinners has come to befriend us. The doctor has come to heal us. The saviour has come to save us. He was the only truly righteous person. But through his death on the cross, we exchange our sin for his righteousness. It's just an exchange. And then we can enter into that glorious, wonderful, healing, refreshing, strengthening friendship that we were designed for. We're going to sing.